I invite you to turn this morning to Judges chapter 13, the end of Judges chapter 13, where we will commence our reading this morning. As you turn there, again, it's good to be in the Lord's house and to gather with you and praise Him. Just like you, we, we have our, our burdens through the week, and it's an encouragement just to be with the people of God and to worship together. How we need the Lord's help in these days and His intervention. We are so blessed, you know. I, uh, I get a number of newsletters from different missionaries and ministries, some of which I know personally, others are more... I just have an interest in the area, and the other day I got a newsletter in from a, a little ministry in Armenia, and they were talking about the poverty that is there, and just, just reading it, I had to read it, some of it to the family yesterday. It's just absolutely devastating, you think, of the conditions that some people are in, uh, war uh, causing poverty and destruction, devastation, and Fathers being killed in war and mothers being left with their children and all sorts of things. We, we hardly know we're living here. So we ought to be all the more humble and all the more penitent. God would be merciful to our nation, preserve us, keep us. But we're coming to a character I was tempted to skip over. And I wasn't, they were in my mind, but I thought, well, maybe I'll not bother dealing with this person. And then I was in conversation just randomly. The person said, are, are you going to deal with Samson? I thought, well, I am now. <laughs> so, so there we are. The Lord leads us and gives us understanding of his mind in various ways. So Judges 13, verse 24, we will pick up reading there. And it's sometimes, it's sometimes difficult here with these characters, just uh, we can't read everything and yet um, we want to give sufficient picture of what's going on. So Judges 13 verse 24, we'll read through chapter 14 and then a little more in chapter 16 as well. Judges 13 verse 24, And the woman bare a son and called his name Samson, and the child grew and the Lord blessed him. And the Spirit of the Lord began to move him at times in the camp of Dan between Zorah and Eshdol. And Samson went down to Timnath and saw a woman in Timnath of the daughters of the Philistines. And he came up and told his father and his mother and said, I have seen a woman in Timnath of the daughters of the Philistines. Now therefore get her for me to wife. Then his father and his mother said unto him, Is there never a woman among the daughters of thy brethren? Are among all thy people that thou goest to take a wife of the uncircumcised Philistines? And Samson said unto his father, Get her for me, for she pleaseth me well. But his father and his mother knew not that it was of the Lord that he sought an occasion against the Philistines, for at that time the Philistines had dominion over Israel. Then went Samson down and his father and his mother to Timnath, and came to the vineyards of Timnath, and behold, a young lion roared against him. And the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon him, and he rent him as he would have rent a kid, and he had nothing in his hand. But he told not his father or his mother what he had done. And he went down and talked with the woman, and she pleased Samson well. And after a time he returned to take her, and he turned aside to see the carcass of the lion. And behold, there was a swarm of bees and honey in the carcass of the lion. And he took thereof in his hands and went on eating and came to his father and mother and he gave them, and they did eat, but he told not them that he had taken the honey out of the carcass of the lion. And then to chapter 16, verse 15, I a few verses here. We've had the opening event that relates to Delilah. And in verse 15 we read, And she said unto him, How canst thou say I love thee, when thine heart is not with me? Thou hast mocked me these three times, and hast not told me wherein thy great strength lieth. And it came to pass, when she pressed him daily with her words, and urged him, so that his soul was vexed unto death, that he told her all his heart, and said unto her, There hath not come a razor upon mine head, for I have been a Nazarite unto God from my mother's womb. If I be shaven, then my strength will go from me, 
And I shall become weak and be like any other man. And when Delilah saw that he had told her all his heart, she sent and called for the lords of the Philistines, saying, Come up this once, for he hath showed me all his heart. And the lords of the Philistines came up unto her, and brought money in their hand, and she made him sleep upon her knees. And she called for a man, and she caused him to shave off the seven locks of his head. And she began to afflict him, and his strength went from him. And she said, The Philistines be upon thee, Samson. And he awoke out of his sleep, and said, I will go out as at other times before, and shake myself. And he wist not that the Lord was departed from him. But the Philistines took him, and put out his eyes, and brought him down to Gaza, and bound him with fetters of brass, and he did grind in the prison house. Howbeit the hair of his head began to grow again after he was shaven. And the lords of the Philistines gathered them together for to offer a great sacrifice unto Dagon their God, and to rejoice. For they said, Our God hath delivered Samson our enemy into our hand. And when the people saw him, they praised their God. For they said, Our God hath delivered into our hands our enemy, and the destroyer of our country, which slew many of us. And it came to pass, when their hearts were merry, that they said, Call for Samson, that he may make us sport. And they called for Samson out of the prison house, and he made them sport, and they set him between the pillars. And Samson said unto the lad that held him by the hand, Suffer me, that I may feel the pillars whereupon the house standeth, that I may lean upon them. That the house was full of men and women, and all the lords of the Philistines were there. And there were upon the roof about three thousand men and women that beheld while Samson made sport. And Samson called unto the Lord and said, O Lord God, remember me, I pray thee. And strengthen me, I pray thee, only this once, O God, that I may be at once avenged of the Philistines for my two eyes. And Samson took hold of the two middle pillars upon which the house stood, and on which it was borne up, of the one with his right hand and of the other with his left. And Samson said, Let me die with the Philistines. And he bowed himself with all his might, and the house fell upon the Lord's, and upon all the people that were therein. So the dead which he slew at his death were more than they which he slew in his life. Then his brethren and all the house of his father came down and took him and brought him up and buried him between Zorah and Eshtaol in the burying place of Manoah his father. And he judged Israel twenty years. Amen. When our reading there, may the Lord write his word in our hearts and give us understanding in this matter. Let us pray. Lord, do give us understanding, give us the help we need as we come to this portion. So thankful for every word of God, for it is pure. And we ask that Thou wilt give us favor in our comprehension, in our receiving it in meekness, the engrafted word that is able to save our souls. May we know its washing effect, sanctifying us and making us like unto Christ. May we be purified, may we be empowered, and may we receive the word in the way that would bring most glory to thy name. So give us attentiveness, give us hearts that are meek and lowly, and grant us a sense of thy presence, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. A subject that often comes up when we deal with young people is that of potential. I like to talk about the potential of young people. We hear all the time, schools talk about, they talk about the potential of the young people. They try to encourage them to make sure they fulfill and reach their potential. And we like to imagine that great and mighty things will be done by those that we see possess great gifts. And sometimes they do. Sometimes gifted people go on to do wonderful things. But there's a lot to be said for faithfulness in the ordinary course of life. We love the grand. It's the grand that we write stories about. It's the grand that we record and we consider and we reflect upon and pass on down through the generations. But there is a lot to be said about faithfulness in the ordinary course of life. The day-by-day matters. The affairs that are rather mundane, maybe even boring, being faithful in those things. When we think of people in Scripture, for example, that had great potential, there are a number that come to mind. And Samson certainly is one of them. We think of this extraordinary 
character, something of an enigma in some ways. And we look at him and we lament. We lament various details that are recorded for us. And we might say he failed to really reach his potential. A young man, he judges Israel for 20 years. It's, It's really not a long time. It could have gone on a lot longer. But because of his sin, the circumstances he placed himself in, that was not to be the case. And you read over his life, of course, the, the, the sense is really that this, this, is, this, is just a, this is just a disappointment from one end to the other. There's so little to encourage us. And, and maybe when we would consider, for example, the Christ-likeness of Samson, we might immediately shrink away and say, there's nothing, nothing, there's no way at all that Samson points us to Jesus Christ. Of course, the reason why we do that is because we see his flaws, they are so significant, whereas on the flip side, we see men like Moses, and we see men like, like, uh, like jo- Joseph and others that, that are, are, let's say, more consistent and more faithful, and we are more likely to say they're like the Lord Jesus Christ. But here's the thing, beloved. The thing is, every single person or even aspect of the, the sacrifices or the tabernacle or the temple, all of these things are flawed pointers to Christ. Every one of them. There's not one thing that points to Christ that is in itself perfect in that. They're all coming up short. Samson, Samson comes up short just like everyone and everything else. There are things, there are things in his life that point us to the Lord Jesus Christ. Consider five before we proceed to consider his life. He is like Christ in his pronouncement, for example. Look at chapter 13 and where we're told in verse 2, of this certain man of Zorah, of the family of the Danites, whose name was Manoah, and his wife was barren, and bare not. And the angel of the Lord appeared unto the woman, and said unto her, Behold, now thou art barren, and bearest not, but thou shalt conceive and bear a son. This is a prophecy. Prophecy of a coming child, just like the Lord Jesus Christ. You could put that right into how the Lord dealt with Mary as well very similar language. He is like Christ in his purpose. Look at verse 5 of chapter 13. For lo, thou shalt conceive and bear a son, and no razor shall come on his head. For the child shall be a Nazarite unto God from the womb, and he shall begin to deliver Israel out of the hand of the Philistines. His purpose is to be a deliverer. Again, you have language that echoes that which was spoken to Joseph. Thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save or he shall deliver his people from their sins. This is all before he even comes on the scene. He is like Christ, we might say, in his pledge. Our Lord Jesus was under a pledge, a promise of absolute devotion to the Father's will throughout the entirety of his life from womb to tomb, as it were, and beyond, the Lord Jesus Christ was faithful. And so it was to be for Samson. He's a Nazarite. We are told in verse 5, the child shall be a Nazarite unto God from the womb. Now, I don't have time to go to Numbers chapter 6 and deal with the aspects of the Nazarite vow, but the Nazarite vow, this, this vow of dedication, was one that was often entered into first voluntarily and second temporarily. So a man may decide to enter into this this period of devotion to the Lord. He would take a Nazarite vow that would require certain things of him that are outlined in Numbers chapter 6, but he would engage in it, but that would often come to an end. For Samson, it begins from before he is even born, and the intention is for it to continue throughout the entirety of his life, just like Christ, a pledge of devotion, of consecration, of commitment to the Lord throughout his life. He is like Christ in his progress. We read here at the end of chapter 13, verse 24, the woman bare a son and called his name Samson, and the child grew, and the Lord blessed him, and the Spirit of the Lord began to move him at times 
So you have here him, him progressing in his physical growth and advancement, and it's just like what we hear about the Lord Jesus. There's not much given about Samson in his childhood. There's not much given about the Lord Jesus Christ in his childhood, but we are told about him gaining strength and favor and the grace of God being upon him. And fifthly, he is like Christ in his passion. Just as Christ gained and attained his greatest victory in his final sufferings and death, so it was for Samson. We read of it in chapter 16. Our Lord Jesus brought life through his own death. Samson brought life to Israel through his own death, delivered them from their enemies. So he does point to Christ in various ways, as flawed as he is. But like everyone else, there are examples for us to learn from him, and he is not everything we might have hoped him to be. We lament the shortcomings. We grieve his sins. And they are a stark reminder to every one of us that you can have all the gifting and the perfect environment and really there could be nothing more to add in terms of bestowing favor upon you and you still fall short every time we see this we are reminded that we are still waiting for the Messiah I mean that's the point when you see these great men and you see their flaws and there's such hope and promise and the children of Israel are, are beginning to look and anticipate and hope for deliverance, the flaws are there to remind them that they're still waiting for their Messiah. Our Lord Jesus is the only true deliverer of men. So as we consider his life, I've abbreviated with this title, Samson, he who knew the power of God. He who knew the power of God. Because what comes to mind when you think of Samson? Power. Power. The ability to do things that ordinarily are impossible to do. That's Samson. So we note, first of all, that he was filled with the Spirit. He was filled with the Spirit. We are told in the beginning of of chapter 13 that he is of the tribe of Dan. And I can't go into the tribe of Dan, but the the tribe of Dan isn't the most advantageous tribe. Let's just put it that way. There's not much promising about them if we take the whole of Scripture. And in one sense, that just points us to the real condition of humanity. Here is one that is, is, is not in the most advantageous tribe, and yet God intends to use him. Our Lord Jesus takes humanity. We would imagine deliverance to come from the hand of of an angel, and yet he, He takes humanity, and through humanity He brings deliverance to men. It's the seed of the woman that bruises the head of the serpent. And this is stunning. We shouldn't imagine deliverance to come from that very uh, source from which all the trouble arose. And He is born in a very difficult period, a very trying period. In fact, I think if you, find, if you read carefully through the book of Judges, you'll find that, that this has been the longest period of affliction under the Philistines. We're told in verse 1 of chapter 13 that they've been in the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. So it's a dark period, a difficult one. And Samson is born into this long phase of bondage. And he is to be the deliverer. His father, of course, hearing about the birth of his son, he had given up all hope of having a child, and, and the Lord comes and gives this promise. He, he takes it very soberly. Again, verse 8 of chapter 13, Then Manoah entreated the Lord and said, O oh my Lord, let the man of God which thou didst send come again unto us, and teach us what we shall do unto the child that shall be born. That, that's, that's, that's a good start as a parent. That is a good start. Let me tell you, I've said this before, I underline it again. What you need, parents, 
What you need in raising your children is not another perfect parenting book, though I'm all for reading books. But your hope is not in the details of the book. It's not in the practices. It's not in the various ways in which, you know, do we have a very fixed bedtime or do we not? Do we, do, how do we structure the day? How, do we, what, you know, all the, very, all the various methodologies that exist. And everyone's trying to pitch you their methodology and they say, look, this, this is the right one. This, this is the one that makes all the difference. And just, they're just selling you, just selling you something. And there's, there's things to glean, don't get me wrong. But unless you are humble, your methodology means nothing. Manoah could have turned to others that had raised children, a plurality of children, and said, here, help us, and that would have been a good thing. But he begs, he entreats the Lord, teach us what we shall do unto the child that shall be born. Look also at verse 12. Manoah said, now let thy words come to pass. How shall we order the child? And how shall we do unto him? How will we order the child? Help us, help us. This task is too great. He's overwhelmed by, by the immensity of the responsibility. You know, that's not a bad place to be. Mom and dad, it's not a bad place to be, to be overwhelmed at the immensity of the responsibilities. If it puts you before the Lord, if it puts you on your face to entreat the Lord for help, it is a good thing. So that's, that's encouragement for us before we go any further. Manoah is a good man. And Samson comes along by and by, and you may know of some of the artistic impressions that are given concerning him. He's, he's basically, you know, the ancient Arnold Schwarzenegger. He's the Hercules of the Hebrews. He's this massive giant of a man with muscles bulging all over the place. And yet, and yet... I don't think that's really what he looked like. The Philistines are puzzled about the source of his strength. They can't understand how he's able to do the things that he can do. There's something remarkably ordinary about Samson that makes everyone wonder, how? How does he do this? And the key is the Spirit of God. Look at chapter 13, verse 25. number of verses here that or note what some we've read already, verse 25, the Spirit of the Lord began to move him at times. Here's the Spirit come upon him. It begins this, this, this ministry. As it, his ministry begins by the leading of the Spirit. He, he enters into it because the Spirit is moving upon him. Chapter 14, verse 6, his father and mother knew not that it was of the Lord, and he sought an occasion against the Philistines, for at that time the Philistines had dominion. Down to verse 6, the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon him. So there's a Spirit that comes upon him. Verse 19 of the same chapter, the Spirit of the Lord came upon him and he went down to Ashkelon and slew 30 men of them and took their spoil and gave change of garments unto them which expounded the riddle and so on. So the Spirit of the Lord comes. And then again, chapter 15, verse 14, and when he came on to Lehi, the Philistines shouted against him, and the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon him, and the cords that were upon his arms became his flax that was burnt with fire, and his bands loose from off his hands. So this, this is the difference. Paul understood this as well. Pe- people were surprised at Paul's power. He was such an ordinary character, but he had such extraordinary power. And they tried to diminish him in all sorts of ways. He looks like this, and so on, so forth. But there was a power, and he, he understood this. That he wanted 
the speech to be in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. That the preaching of the gospel came in the power of the Spirit. And this is the need, men and women. This is the supernatural aspect of Samson's life. The Holy Spirit is upon him. His power, his strength is because the Spirit comes upon him. Now, when you read through the Old Testament, this, this comes up in a number of places. The Spirit of God comes upon them. But it is, is almost like this exclusive experience. And one of the questions that comes up in theological discussion and comparison of Old and New Testament it comes to this whole idea of, well, in what way is the Spirit working differently in the Old Testament and the New? What's the distinguishing factor? And I'm not getting into that all this morning, but let me summarize my distinction, how I understand the distinction simply to be, it is not in any area relating to regeneration. The Spirit regenerated in the Old Testament just as He does in the New. And it's not in any area of even indwelling, because they knew they were the people of God by the indwelling Spirit, just as we do in the new, and so on and so forth. The distinction is in this, the empowering that is seen upon certain individuals in the Old Testament, such as Samson, this unction for power, this, this enabling of the Lord to do something that otherwise they could not do, is now promised and given to the church that all that seek for it may have it. So your young men and your older men and your young women and so on, they can all have it according to the prophecy of Joel 2. That's what makes the difference in Pentecost. Pentecost is Christ by His reign pouring out the Spirit upon everyone in the way that He did in exclusive fashion in times through the Old Testament. So we look at Samson and he's filled with the Spirit and we we learn, we, we draw from that this, this kind of power, not necessarily to kill lions. I wouldn't encourage you to, you know, spend, you know, a month in fasting and prayer looking for the infilling of the Spirit and then walk into a zoo and put yourself in the presence of a lion and try to tear it apart. I don't think that might, I don't think that will end too well. That's, that's, not, that's not the point. But power to do things that ordinarily you cannot do in relation to extending the kingdom of Christ. Samson is filled with the Spirit. I'm not a Pentecostal, but I will tell you this, there, there has to be, in fact, just coming to mind, we had a visitor with us on Wednesday evening at the prayer meeting. And trained many years ago at a Reformed seminary, and obviously has experience within Reformed circles. And he said to me, when I was talking to him at the end, and almost everyone was gone home at this stage, he said, that's the most Pentecostal prayer meeting I've ever been in in a Presbyterian church. And I took it as a compliment. They talked about the way we're, there was prayers for lost souls and so on. And I, I thought, what, what an indictment to other churches. Wherever he's been, I don't know what his experience is. But give me more of that kind of Pentecostalism. He wasn't referring to speaking in tongues because no one was speaking in tongues. Isn't that a tragedy? So, so we, need, we need, and I long for it more, we, we gather on Wednesdays and other occasions, and what's the prayer? What's the prayer? More of the Spirit. It's more of His power. Mom, what do you need as you get up and you deal with the children and all that goes on with that? What do you need? The Spirit of God. Father, what do you need? You need the Spirit of God and you deal with the ungodly in your place of employment and all the frustrations and the challenges of living in an ungodly world. What do you need, beloved? You need the Spirit. You need His empowering, not to, 
to speak in some so-called heavenly language or some other mumbo-jumbo. It's just power enabling to do what you can't do of yourself. And it is a tragedy, a travesty, that in Reformed churches there, there is this sense of we have everything that we need to have and there's never therefore a, a prayer, an offering of prayer. I mean, if the same people were the apostles, they wouldn't even have gone to the upper room. They might have gone up to have a little time of prayer and just say, Lord, bless us now that you've gone to heaven and you've called us to preach to every creature and then off they would go. And they, they're waiting, waiting, waiting days on end, waiting for the promise of the Father. It wouldn't have happened. They would have found some theological way to say we, we already have it and not, not seek for it. But repeatedly through the book of Acts, what did they do? They pray. They pray for power. They pray for help. They, they're looking for enabling. It's enabling. That's what it is. It's enabling. So you just you can't do it. You can't face your unsaved loved ones this Thanksgiving and have any impact upon their life. You haven't the words that will penetrate their dead souls. You're dealing with the dead. Oh, blessed empowerment. When the Holy Spirit falls on his people. So he's filled with the Spirit. And you, you, child of God, you, that's the good in something. That's, that's the example you say, I want that. I mean, the, even the, his hair, the strength wasn't in his hair. The strength was, was, was tied to the vow that the hair signified. The vow of commitment, of being sold out to the cause of his God. This brings us in to consider Secondly, he was called to separation. He was not only filled with the Spirit, he was called to separation. We read of it in some of the verses of chapter 13 already, verses 3 through 5, where the angel of the Lord appears onto Manoah's wife and tells her about conceiving a son. And she, he, he, he warns her, verse 4, Beware, I pray thee, and drink not wine or strong drink, nor eat any unclean thing. For lo, thou shalt conceive and bear a son, and no razor shall come on his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite unto God from the womb. The secret of his power, the reason why the Spirit was pleased to come upon him and abide on him as he did, was because he was separate from the world. It's the devotion to Christ and the separation from the world that is necessary to know the empowerment. You can't, if you're the friend of the world, James says, you're the enemy of God. If you're the enemy of God, you're not going to know the empowering of the Spirit. Simple. So to know the empowering of the Spirit, and all church history will testify to this, as well as the Word of God, there must be a commitment to God that turns our backs to the world. And the degree to which you turn your back to the world will in some way, though not entirely, in some way correlate with the enjoyment of divine power. There are certain fascinating things about the Nazarite and what they were called to do. Like I said, most men, it was, it was temporary. They would voluntarily come at a certain point and they would, they would commit themselves to God for a period of time. And we read in Numbers 6, verse 18 about the Nazarite. You, you may wish to turn there or at least make a marker so you can read it on another occasion. But in Numbers 6, verse 18, the Nazarite shall shave the head of his separation at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. So once he comes to the end of his period of the vow, once that comes to a conclusion, he marks the end of that by coming to the tabernacle. And it says, And shall take the hair of the head of his separation 
and put it in the fire which is under the sacrifice of the peace offerings. That is the only thing that God ever requires of our humanity to be placed upon the altar. Mercifully, because it should be us that dies on the altar. It should be us perishing for our sins. But instead, all the other, the burnt offering, he brings the animal, he he places his hands upon it as transfer of guilt. He kills it, that animal gets placed on the altar, that animal gets burnt up, that animal suffers what we deserve. Mercifully, there is, there is depicted a sense of substitution. But there is, in this practice, a part of our humanity that gets placed there. It is the only part that the Lord calls for to be burnt up. And I'm sure there are lots of lessons in that Many things to ponder. I encourage you to meditate on it. What, 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 is this, what is this saying? I think you can see there that there's an element of the humanity of Christ being placed on the altar in a certain fashion. But here's the thing. It, is, it was the symbol of their, of their separation. The hair signified that they were different now from the world. Samson lives his entire life. He's meant to live his entire life in that kind of separation, in that kind of... Put it this way. The only thing the, only thing the Lord will accept from us is that which has been done in pure consecration to Him. Signifying that He is very careful about what He receives. We, therefore... If we want to truly be consecrated to the Lord, we must, we must be separated from the world. As the hair signified separation from the world, so us, we ourselves, are to be separated from the world. Which is why then Paul says that we are to present our bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, that we're putting them before God. It must be separated from the world. So it goes on to say, and be not conformed to this world, but be transformed. And I have to believe there's some kind of Nazarite significance in that. God's people are to be separated from the world. We are not, we are not to be those involved to the degree that we're like the world, that we love what the world loves, we do what the world does, we get so entangled with it that we are unable to serve our king. This, this, there's no getting away from this. If, if Samson is going to do what the Lord has called him to do with his life, he must constantly have the symbol of separation and live it out. There are times, of course, he contaminates himself, gets involved with woman that he should not be involved with. He comes into contact with dead carcasses, which again flies in the face of, of what he's allowed to do during the vow. And you look at all that he does, the wife, at, the woman at Timnath, the Delilah, everything else. And, and there are two ways of looking at it, two, two ways. Either you look at it in the in the sense of the, the way we all can fall. And I think there's, there's certainly a lesson there. We get involved with things we shouldn't get involved with. And there are consequences to that. There's another side with Samson. There's another side in which, as he gives himself to these things, they, and they don't seem to have, at least some of them anyway, they don't seem to have a negative impact upon him. It's almost like in that he's also typifying Christ, that Christ can touch the leper. And such is his separation unto God, he is not contaminated by doing so. And I don't know if that's what's being depicted in Samson. I'm not sure. But I, I, I pondered it. See, you see, the, the, the travesty of him, him falling and God's not disciplining and he goes from bad to worse 
And that's a lesson for us. We're not to do that. Or it is this, this Christ-like ability to touch the unclean thing and carry on just like the Lord Jesus because he was so separated unto the Lord. Whatever the case, none of it is an excuse for us to touch that which we are not meant to touch or do that which we are not meant to do because we are not like Christ. And we do get contaminated. We do get... And just as Samson eventually, he, he also... His weakness comes on display as well. But this is the point. Separation. Separation. We have to separate from the world, Christian. We have to. There are things we just should not be involved with. Things we should not touch. Things that we can't get involved with and stay clean. We can't. Thirdly, he was awakened, or rather, he was weakened by sin. He was weakened by sin. Samson presents such strength when he walks with the Lord as he ought to do. And I, I, I will say this the vast majority of his life had to have been faithful. Had to have been. He gets mentioned in, in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 32 or thereabouts, he, he gets mentioned. As, as listed with those that the time would fail me to speak of, of Gideon and Samson and Barak and so on, it goes on to say. In other words, the writer to the Hebrews wants to deal, he would love to deal with Samson and how by faith he did what he did. And so, largely speaking, his life, by faith, he was, he was a torment to the Philistines. They, they hated him. They hated him. And because he was a thorn in their flesh, he, he, while he was there, their, their powers weakened. While he was there, they had reason to fear. In chapter 14, his first, we're told at the end of verse 13, the Spirit begins to move him. When he comes to Timnath, verse 5 of chapter 14, when he comes down to Timnath, his first confrontation here is with a young lion. A young lion roared against him. That's his first confrontation. I couldn't read that but think of, isn't that like our Lord? Our Lord's first confrontation as he begins his ministry. What is it? He was led by the Spirit to be tempted 40 days by the devil. The devil who goes about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And here's Samson being led to confront this depiction of, of the arch enemy. And just as Christ was victor over the devil, so Samson here is victor over this lion. The Spirit of God enables him, just as the Spirit of God enabled Jesus Christ, being led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted 40 days by the devil, it was by the enabling power of the Spirit that he wrought that first victory in direct confrontation with his arch enemy. In chapter 15, verses 9 and following, he is betrayed into the hands of the Philistines by the, by the men of Judah. It's the men of Judah. This is, this is the Lord Jesus Christ. He came to, unto his own, and his own received him not. Samson came to deliver the men of Judah, to be a help to them, and here they are betraying him into the hands of the enemy. And yet still he is able to defeat the enemy, even with the betrayal, just like Christ. Betrayed, hated by his own. In chapter 15, verse 14 and following, we, we see him using the jawbone of an ass as a, an instrument. And you know, what, what a... <laughs> it's not exactly the first weapon that comes to mind. But, but you read of it and you think the jawbone of an ass. Well, you know, asses were, donkeys were not significant creatures. And in fact, we, 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 are, we are likened onto them. In Job, it says that man be born like, a, like unto a wild ass's colt. Like, oh, man's birth is just, just like this creature. Man in some way depicts this creature. And yet, yet this is the thing that he takes up in hand. Here he's like the Lord. 
He takes, he takes a foolish instrument. He takes the foolish to confound the wise. He takes the weak to confound the mighty. But again, this is all by the, the sweet influences of the, of the Spirit of God. And as we've noted already in chapter 16, where he slew more in his death than in his life, just as Christ's greatest victory was upon the cross, defeating his and our enemies by his own death. Now, we would have thought that by death he would be robbed of his power, but no, no. But there is, there is this, this, this parenthetical reality to Samson's life. All of his accomplishments, all of his victories, there's this reality that we can't ignore. His sins. That a man so consecrated to God had not full control over the powers of his own flesh. Samson had a weakness. The man whose whole body was to be consecrated to God found himself overcome by that same body and its passions. And this is the reality. This young man depicts many a young man, full of promise, full of hope, full of energy, full of zeal, so much to be encouraged by as we look at them. But with all the gifting, if he does not maintain control over his passions, his passions will ultimately destroy him. Let me ask you, man and woman, young and old, the passions of your life, the lusts of your flesh, how do you fare today? How do you fare? Our flesh is a great enemy indeed. And we can have many victories over the Philistines, however they manifest themselves. These external, these external forces of evil. But what about the self? What about our own hearts? Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 9.27, I keep under my body and bring it into subjection, lest that by any means, when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. We sorrow, we sorrow the passing of, of, of good men and women. We do. And funerals are times of mourning. But I have learned in recent years, probably about six or seven years ago, when it first really hit me, the glory of someone passing into the presence of Christ, having not made shipwreck of their faith. However early, or late it comes. There is a triumph, a wonderful triumph in the Christian who enters the presence of Christ without an utter failure where they have brought public shame to the name of the Lord Jesus. Oh, they'll have their sins like everyone. They will. But they have maintained they have maintained a course of fidelity 
and they've never become a castaway, thrown onto the, the dung heap. So Paul was aware, Paul was aware he, he had to keep, he had to maintain this, this commitment. His own body needed to be brought into subjection. This, this Adamic nature, it's not just the physical body, it's the Adamic nature. It's the self, as he calls it in Romans seven twenty four, the body of this death. And through his writings, he, he encourages what to do. He, he, encouraged, he would speak to the Samson. He would speak to the Samson. He'd tell him, mortify the deeds of the body, Samson. Crucify the affections with the lusts. Put off the old man with his deeds. So on and so forth. Samson's sins affected his judgment. He allowed himself to be lied to. He, you, you read it and you go, what are you doing, man? You, you know her intentions. You know what Delilah wants. What are you doing? So the first time, yeah, there's a sin of, there's a sin of, of going there in the first place. But then when she tries to to, to betray you into the hands of the Philistines and she lies through her teeth, you might think to yourself, well, you know, I'll, I'll, take, I'll take a wide berth around that person. But he goes right back. He goes right back. His, his wits are gone. His, his, his long before the Philistines put his eyes out, he couldn't see. That's the point, isn't it? Isn't it? Long... Long before they gouged out his eyes, the man wasn't able to use his ability to see. It was gone. And you see it, you see it with young and old. You see it with God's people, those in the church. They make decisions, but they can't see. They make allowance, they've made allowance for sin and the life. And eventually, those sins blind them. See, they, 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 you don't have the fear of the Lord. I was just reading it with the family last night, Proverbs 16, 6. By the fear of the Lord, men depart from evil. They, they don't fear God. Samson no longer had the fear of the Lord in his heart. And neither do you when you find yourself making allowance for the things that might destroy you. When you're playing games with sin, when you're trifling, when you're bargaining, when you're imagining it may trip others up, it won't destroy me. When, when, you're, when you're looking and you're, you're, you're creating room for things and you're having friendships and you're putting yourself in places where you're alone and you're, you're doing things that will, they will destroy you. And part of you knows it, but you kind of think, no, it won't happen. It won't happen. I've, I've been there. I've been there. As a, as a minister, I've been there. I like, go, go to see someone. And I, and I think, oh, the context there, and I, I just, well, surely nothing. There's nothing in it. I mean, and then I, I, you know, I talk to Melanie, and there are time, times where you just, you say, it's not worth it. It's not worth it. It's not worth it. Even, even, even the appearance. So this is so sobering. And we close. We close with one of the saddest and one of the most encouraging realities that we have here. The end of verse 20 of chapter 16, what is it? He wist not. He couldn't discern. Here again you see he can't see. His eyes are already gouged out. They might as well be. His spiritual sight is gone. That which Paul prays for for the Ephesians in Ephesians chapter 1, he doesn't possess. The eyes of your understanding being enlightened, and so on and so forth. He, he, he doesn't have it. And he wished not that the Lord was departed from him. Underline it. Underline it and sob over it. He doesn't know. He doesn't know. He doesn't know. He's just, he's just imagining. He thinks everything's fine, but it's not. And that might be you. It might be me. You could be here and not know. Oh, what a judgment. What a judgment to think. Yeah, I'm going on with God. 
I'm a Christian, I'm right with God, but, but you don't know. You don't know. You've been trifling. You've been trifling. There have been encroaching influences. There have been sins that have taken a foothold. Their, their hooks are getting into you. And, and there was a time when you would never touch it. You wouldn't go near it. But now you find reason to excuse it, to accept it, to imbibe it, to be, make, befriend it. And it's destroying you. It's destroying you. And I don't know. I don't know who here this morning has something that it's got its hooks in you. And you're on the very brink of destruction and you don't know the Lord has departed. He's already departed. When you think at the last moment, you think you're going to be able to dig yourself out of that temptation, you won't. You won't. But there's hope. Because in verse 22, how be it the hair of his head began to grow again. <sighs> Recovery. There's always a new day. There's renewal. There's always. In our Lord Jesus Christ, he brings life from the dead. He brings hope where there is no hope. He supplies life where there's been nothing but death. And he can take that which seems to be gone entirely. And he can cause, he can cause it to come to life again. This is encouragement to the backslider here today. Your hair, the symbol of your separation, your vow of consecration to Christ, you can get it back. You can get back there. So let me ask you, will you take that journey this morning? Will you? Will you take that journey? It's the journey of repentance. It's a journey of acknowledgement of your sin. It's a journey of realizing that you've been playing with the things that grieves your God and you're done with it. And you take a journey. And you take all those playthings and those friendships and whatever it is. I don't know. May the Spirit teach your conscience. You take it all and you just burn it. You burn it like the Ephesians burned all their books. And you just take it and you put it up in flames and then you present yourself to Christ. And in tears you give him and you say, Lord, whatever I can do for you, here am I, send me. And there's victory there. And that's, that's how you want to die. Samson, thank God he died in a note of victory. Yes, there's, there's sadness, but there's a victory. And that, that, that may be you. Ah, it will be as all, won't it? It will be as all. We'll all have things we can look back and say when we in our folly we had our eyes gouged out and all sorts of scars because of our stupidity. But oh, may we go on the chariots of repentance and faith into the presence of Christ in the joy of what our Lord Jesus has done for us and the victory of Him using sinners like us to extend His kingdom and bring glory to His name. For, thy, for his pleasure, you have been created. May the Lord help you to bring pleasure to him. Let's bow together in prayer. Power with God, Christian. Power with God. You can know it. You can know more of it. Though the outer man perish, the inner man can be renewed day by day. You can be more filled with the Spirit today than you've ever been in your life. God will use that which is consecrated to Him. So where are you? Where are you? Are you making excuses for sin? Is there something in your life? Is there some Delilah that you won't let go of? You keep going back to. You keep going, you keep going back there. Whatever it is, you keep going back and you think it's going to be different, but it's not. She's, the only thing it wants to do, or what they want to do, is destroy you. Give up your Delilah. 
give your heart and life entirely to Christ. Lord, we pray thy blessing upon thy word. We thank thee for the examples that we find in Scripture, the warnings that we receive. Thankful that even in the best of men, they tell us, they warn us that they are not the Savior. They are not the ones that can save us. Jesus Christ alone is the Savior of the world. We're thankful for him who never trifled with sin, who in all points was tempted like as we are yet without sin. Praise God. We're thankful that by his pure life and his atoning death, he has carved the path of, of salvation, of reconciliation, redemption to sinful men. And may we ever abide under the cross. May we live in the shadow. May its presence ever direct our hearts. And when we are tempted to sin and play around with Delilah, may the shadow of the cross cause us to run, to flee in to that cross for cleansing, for pardon, yes, and for power. May the Holy Ghost fall on us in these days, Lord. May we be empowered. May we know what it is to be useful in the hands of our Master. Grant us a blessed afternoon. Be in every home. And may the grace of our Lord Jesus, the love of God our Father, and the fellowship of the Spirit rest upon every blood-bought child of God,